What would happen if a Christian king from Asia suddenly showed up in medieval Europe and described his kingdom as a Christian utopia free from all vice? Come along with me on a fantastic voyage on today's Footnoting History. Hey Footnoters, I'm Josh, the new host on the roster at Footnoting History. I'm so excited to be able to bring you an episode on Prester John, a mythical king who existed in the minds of medieval Europeans. Before we dive in, I wanted to thank the rest of the Footnoting History crew for bringing me aboard. I was a fan before I became a host, so it was really thrilling when the crew reached out to me and asked if I would join them. Here's to a long, fruitful, and educational relationship. Prester John entered my world when I first started work on my dissertation back in 2013. I was in graduate school, and people learned of my interest in Christianity in Asia during the Middle Ages, and they often asked me about Prester John. The answer always was, I really hadn't heard of him. But being asked that question so many times made me wonder if my research should include Prester John. But he was not at the center of my research. The legend, though, fascinated me, and I swore that I would return to investigate him a bit more one day. Well, today's that day, and I get to share it with this fine audience. So let's jump right on in. Prester John was, according to legend, a Christian king who, during the European Middle Ages, lived beyond the geographical boundaries of Latin Christendom. That is, the kingdoms and regions in Europe that adhered to the Latin Rite of Christianity, what we now call the Roman Catholic Church. When the myth first appeared in the first half of the 12th century, Prester John's kingdom was in Far East Asia. Curiously, though, as time went on and the legend evolved and as more and more Europeans traveled to Asia and could not find Prester John, his kingdom moved to Africa. We should start at the beginning, though. I want to suggest here from the get-go that we think of Prester John as a reflection of Europeans gazing at Asia and imposing their worldview on that continent. But I also want to suggest that we think of Prester John in the mindset of European Latin Christians as well, and glance at Prester John as an apocalyptic figure. So who was Prester John? We've outlined that a bit earlier, you know, Christian king from Asia and all, but let's dig into some details. Keegan Brewer, the editor of the most recent scholarly publication of Prester John Sources, tells us that the legend began as a story about a man named Patriarch John, who came to Rome from India sometime during the year 1122. John apparently met with the Pope, then Calixtus II, it's my second favorite papal name, and told Calixtus of his great capital city in faraway India. Interestingly, John informed the Pope that his subjects were the most faithful Christians in all the world, and indeed, being one of these most faithful Christians was a requirement for subjecthood in this king's kingdom. In fact, if one was not a faithful Christian, Upon entry to John's kingdom, they instantly died. Just outside of John's city sat a church that housed the bones of St. Thomas the Apostle, which awoke every year to bestow blessings on those who visited. 
Now, there's a long tradition that suggests that Thomas may have indeed traveled to India after Jesus returned to heaven. That's going to need its own podcast episode to explain fully, so I'll put it on the to-do list. If the idea of a perfect Christian kingdom with the body of an apostle of Jesus who comes back to life every year sounds like a fantastic story, you're absolutely right. We could dismiss this as a complete fantasy, and we would have good reason to do so. But there is a text that does corroborate a visit of a man named John to the city of Rome who told these tales. Now, this doesn't mean that St. Thomas woke up every year and blessed the faithful and all that, but it does tell us that this story was in circulation. In particular, a version of the John story came from a text written by Odo of Reims, and it contains several of the same details passed on from the original story, with some interesting alterations, namely the reasons for John's journey, as well as the Pope first doubting his claims. But then the Pope agreed that John was telling the truth once John swore an oath on the Gospels. Still, though, in these early sources, John is still just John from India. A patriarch, that is, a leader of Eastern Christianity, but not Prester John. In another source, he's given the title Archbishop. But still, he's not yet Presbyter Johannes, Prester John, John the Priest. So how does he get that name? About two decades after the initial story of John's visit to Rome broke into the European consciousness, something major happened out in crusader-occupied West Asia. A great battle between a powerful Islamic leader and an unknown leader from the Far East. Brewer, our main source for this story, tells us that the opponent of the Islamic leader was a Buddhist Khitan warrior from the Central Asian steppe. The Latin Christians of the Crusader states, their minds already filled with the legend of John, Patriarch of India, and not knowing exactly what a Buddhist was, believed that this must have been the John who visited Europe just a few decades earlier. From here, much of what we know about Prester John, or what we know that the Latin West thought they knew, doesn't change for a couple of decades. The name Prester John first appears in a manuscript from Otto of Freising from the year 1145 about the nature of the two cities, the earthly city of man and the heavenly city of God. Otto's mention of Prester John comes from a retelling of the meeting the then Pope, Eugenius III, had with a bishop from the Latin Crusader states, Bishop Hugh of Jabala, about a battle involving Prester John, who fought to assist the Crusaders in the Holy Land. Hugh told the Pope that Prester John was unable to come to the Crusaders' assistance, and thus, the Crusaders lost. Brewer tells us that this was, in fact, a real battle between Seljuk forces and the Karakhitai, an East Asian people who established an empire in Central Asia. It had nothing to do with the Crusaders. It seems as if Otto of Freising, or perhaps Hugh, whose report Otto records, mistakenly associated the Harakitai with an army belonging to Prester John. There is perhaps another explanation. Brewer notes in his introduction to the critical edition of Prester John's sources 
that Otto of Freising's grammar suggests that he is recording the popular knowledge of the day. That it's not necessarily Hugh who declares that this must have been Prester John, but instead that it was just common knowledge that it must have been the legendary king. Brewer suggests that this both confirms that the legend of Prester John was in wide circulation in the middle of the 12th century, and that many of the Latin Christian elite were very skeptical about the story. Otherwise, Otto probably would have not signaled that this was just popular opinion. Also curious, Eugenius III, the Pope in question here, never wrote a letter in response to Prester John, and no other accounts of Prester John existed outside of Otto of Freising's report. Plus, Prester John does not make an appearance in crusading literature until after the Fifth Crusade in the 13th century, marking a 70-year absence from that genre of writing, which, had he existed, most certainly would have recorded his presence. Despite being absent from crusading literature until the early 13th century, another document involving Prester John arrived on the scene in the mid-12th century. And if I may borrow some language from our younger listeners, this one was a banger, and oh boy did it slap. Sometime between 1165 and 1170, a letter arrived in the Latin West from Prester John himself. And let's be frank here, this letter changed the Latin West's understanding about Asia entirely. In fact, it animated most of what medieval Europeans thought that they knew about Asia, to such an extent that later travelers from the Latin West to East Asia used the knowledge that they had gained from this letter to guide them. Marco Polo mentions things that relate to this letter. Other travelers, like the famous William of Rubruck, who journeyed to the Mongols' court in the 13th century, all based their understandings of Asia in greater or smaller extents on the contents of this letter. So, listeners, you're amazing and brilliant, so I trust that you're already a bit skeptical about this rather dubious letter. Evidence backs up that instinct. The letter was a forgery. We know this because the letter contained language that really didn't fit ideas that were on vogue anywhere outside of Western Europe. The letter itself was addressed to the Greek emperor, Manuel Komnenos, but the letter is full of rather insulting things about the Greeks, a trademark of Latin Christian thinking about this time. How it ended up in the hands of Latin, the Latin church? That's anybody's guess. But we do know that it survives in 469 manuscripts, 234 of which are in Latin, and 30 of them are from the 12th century, the time of its original authorship. So, suffice it to say, it was in circulation. Who brought it to the Pope's attention, though? That's a question that probably doesn't have a definitive answer. Also curious to this History Podcast host is that the letter doesn't mention much about Prester John's own Christianity. Well, the author of Prester John's letter does mention some expected hallmarks of his Christianity, namely that the Apostle Thomas was an important part of his church. But I was surprised that there wasn't any mention of his own theological positions, given how detailed the letter is on other subjects. 
The Latin church would have labeled Prester John, and did, as a Nestorian Christian, an imprecise description that carries a lot of theological baggage. But let's just say he wouldn't agree with either the Greek or the Latin church on most things. But there is absolutely no criticism of the Latin church here, even veiled criticism. It's all about the Greeks. That's a very Latin thing to do. He even asks the Byzantine emperor if the emperor holds the right faith. I mean, that's pretty brutal. The rest of the letter contains, let's say, oodles of bizarre, mythical descriptions of Asia. This fits in with a genre of literature that scholars call the Marvels of the East, drawing on writers like Solinus, who compiled a mythological compendium around 300 CE, and the description Alexander the Great provided while he was busy conquering in Asia. These tall tales included descriptions of beings in Asia who had the heads of dogs, mouths in the middle of their abdomens, and other such fanciful creatures. Besides these descriptions of not-quite-human beings, the letter also contains some interesting mentions of sacred geography. The author of the Prester John letter, of course, mentions the body of the Apostle Thomas, but he also mentions Babylon and the Tower of Babel as being adjacent to his own kingdom. There's even a mention of a fountain of youth that kept its imbibers permanently 32 years old. I think I'd be okay with that. 32 was a pretty good year for me. Prester John's kingdom also did not contain any thieves, liars, nor any vice whatsoever. This was clearly an expression of medieval Western European utopian thinking, at the very least. Such a feature is a pretty compelling piece of evidence for why we should doubt its authenticity. We know that the letter of Prester John was a forgery, but we don't know who sent it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Perhaps the most plausible theory was offered by the scholar Bernard Hamilton, who argues that the letter was written by one of the members of the court of the German Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, perhaps one of Frederick's loyal archbishops. Good old Freddy Babs, or Barbarossa and the Pope at the time, Alexander III, were in a heated conflict over which one had the claim to ultimate authority in Germany. As such, Hamilton suggests that the Prester John letter was mere political propaganda, aimed directly at the Pope, and any claim that the Pope made to worldly authority, meaning any claim on authority that Frederick also claimed for himself. This isn't new coming from a German emperor. There's a long tradition of spats, to put it mildly, between the popes of Rome and the emperors of Germany that need a whole series of episodes. But Hamilton's evidence for his claim is the deference the letter shows to Caesaropapism, or a combination of the offices of pope and emperor through the body of Prester John himself, a man who represented and ruled an ideal Christian kingdom. Certainly a pope would not be so sympathetic to such things. Brewer also suggests that we need to consider some other texts in this vein too, especially a text that prophesizes the downfall of Pope Alexander III and shares an interest in Eastern monsters and an idealized Christian society. 
But did the Pope believe that this letter from Prester John was authentic? Opinions are mixed. One scholar claims that Alexander III did believe it and took it seriously, so much so that the Pope sent an embassy to Prester John in order to establish diplomatic relations. But that embassy disappeared and was never heard from again. Brewer tells us to doubt that claim. He has found no evidence that Alexander III ever sent such an embassy, and he may have never read the Prester John letter at all. But we do have a letter from Alexander III to Prester John, and it's full of some rather unsurprising things. Alexander claims ultimate apostolic authority under the banner of St. Peter. He says that he's writing to John to ensure that John is practicing Christianity correctly. Alexander even tells Prester John that he's sending his own physician, a man named Philip, to instruct Prester John in the proper ways of the faith. Now, of course the Pope would write this, but some have suggested that it may have been a response to Frederick Barbarossa himself, after the Pope realized that the original letter was a piece of German political propaganda. Things get really interesting in the 13th century, however. Cataclysm arrived, and this particular cataclysm was the Mongols led by Genghis Khan. What caught the eye of Latin Christians most about the Mongols, though, was that they waged war with the declared enemies of Latin Christendom, Islam. This no doubt stoked some further interest in Prester John, but that interest was already bubbling throughout Western Europe. Starting in the late 12th century, a wide number of texts discussed Prester John across a wide swath of genres. At the beginning of the 13th century, Louis IX launched the Fifth Crusade, which opened up a front in both Egypt and in the Holy Land. In Egypt, the Crusaders discovered a book of prophecies that foretold that a king from the west and a king from the east would meet in Jerusalem to crush Islam forever. Of course, most thought that the eastern king was Prester John, and hearing about the Mongol conquests, the Crusaders decided to wait for Prester John to show up. He never arrived. Muslim forces regrouped during this pause and routed the Crusaders, which led the Crusaders to blame Prester John for the Crusades' failure. Prester John also appears in the travel writing of many Latin Christian travelers to the East, not as a person that they met on their travels, but as a person that they cannot seem to locate. All of them express disappointment at this failure to locate Prester John, but their expectation that they would find him is telling. Plus, Prester John appeared in the writings of other major Western European thinkers, such as Roger Bacon. I submit, dear listeners, that the belief in Prester John was quite widespread during the 13th century. Curiously, despite not being able to locate the venerable Christian king, belief in Prester John persisted. Eventually, though, Prester John changed locations, and was instead located in Africa. This tradition emerged in the late Middle Ages, most likely toward the end of the 15th century, and we can thank the Portuguese for this change. As the Portuguese explored and colonized parts of Africa, they encountered the Ethiopian church, a rich tradition that I've recently taken a great interest in. I'm trying to contain myself here, it's so cool! But in any case, Prester John 
began to become associated with the Ethiopian emperors. This identification wasn't without precedent, however, since the Ethiopian sent an embassy to Europe in the 14th century. Our source, Brewer, suggests that rather than as a distinct person, medieval Europeans began to think of Prester John as a title for foreign rulers, but specifically for the emperors of Ethiopia. In fact, this is probably why the Prester John myth fades out of the historical record. Once the mystery had been quote-unquote solved, and Prester John was now the title of Ethiopian kings, there wasn't really a need to look for him anymore. Well, it did briefly emerge in the 17th century, during which Europeans became aware of Tibet for the first time, and thought that perhaps the Dalai Lama was the legendary Prester John. That didn't last very long. So what should we do with this story? Should we cast off Prester John as a medieval myth that can easily be explained away? I don't think it's that simple. This was an important myth, as it held a lot of meaning for a lot of medieval people, even some really important ones. Modern scholars have explored the Prester John myth in several ways, most recently as a way of understanding medieval conceptions of race, and problematizing older medieval scholarship that suggested that medieval peoples had no conception of what we mean by race. Others have explored Prester John in his crusading context, which is a rather profitable exercise. But, jumping off that last way of exploring the Prester John myth, let me offer one more. We should understand Prester John, especially in the 13th century, as an apocalyptic figure. His story embodies so much apocalyptic expectation, whether about the proper order of earthly authority, to a final destruction of Islam and the capturing of Jerusalem, or as his kingdom as a vision of the world to come after the second coming of Jesus. I believe that there is good reason to explore Prester John in the context of an apocalyptic figure, the last world emperor, who, according to medieval prophecy, would lead the army of Christ against the forces of Gog and Magog at the Battle of Armageddon, though no Bruce Willis would be involved. I've put a link to a great editorial by Thomas Lecoq, a professor at Grandview University, in the further reading section online. You should read it, especially if you're curious about the myth of the last world emperor. But, regardless of how we in the 21st century view Prester John, and use his story to evaluate aspects of the medieval past, we do need to acknowledge just how powerful his legend was to medieval Europeans. The story is so much deeper and richer, dear listeners, and I encourage you to seek out these sources and read them for yourselves. You'll find them endlessly interesting. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to Prester John. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>